Section 19 of The Flight of the Heron by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. Part 4, Chapter 3. The early morning bugle, close at hand, woke Keith Wyndham with a start. He had had little sleep during the night, and was all the deeper buried now. Where was he? He stared round the tent, an unfamiliar one. Then he remembered. And all that endless day he sat in his canvas prison and did little else save remember. For the first time in his life he was in the midst of camp routine without a share in it, with no right to a share in it. No sword hung upon the tent pole, and a sentry paced outside, whose business was not to keep intruders out, but him in. Had he not still been sustained by rage, he might have felt more dejection than he did. The rage was not against Lord Loudon, to whose severity he could not deny some justification, nor was it on his own account. It was against the effeminate Captain Greening and other persons unknown. Not for a moment did he believe that officer's half-sniggering asseveration of voluntary betrayal on the part of Ewan Cameron, though at times the other alternative haunted him so horribly that he almost wished he could believe it. Far better to have let Ardrey go down riddled by bullets on the mountainside than to have saved him for agony and dishonour. Far better had he not come upon him in time. And where was Ardrey? Unable to make personal investigations, Keith could not well ask the soldier who brought him his meals. And, even if he discovered, even if he were allowed an interview with the prisoner, very improbable now, was he so sure that he himself wanted it? Could he bear to see the Highlander again, in the state which must be his by now? His own plight seemed negligible in comparison. He thought of it, indeed, but only with a sort of dull wonder. Up till now, his own advancement had been for him the one star in a grey heaven. Now the heaven was black, and there was no star at all. A rainy yellow sunset was sparing the sky, when the flap of the tent was pulled aside, and an officer came in a very stiff young aide-de-camp. "'I am to inform you, sir,' he said, "'that as this tent is required tonight, "'a room has been prepared for you in the fort. "'And Major General Lord Loudon supposes "'that rather than be marched through the camp under escort, "'you will agree to make no attempt to escape en route, "'in which case I am to conduct you there now, myself.' "'His lordship is extremely considerate,' replied Keith. "'I am only surprised that he is willing to rely on my word. "'But,' No doubt he is aware that I should hardly better my situation by deserting. Then, if you will kindly follow me, said the aide-de-camp still more stiffly, I will lead you to the fort. But, for all his own sarcastic words, for all the absence of an escort, Keith did not enjoy that short journey very much. Everyone whom they met, either among the tents or on the brief stretch of muddy road, must know why he went thus without a sword and whither he was going, and it was with some instinct of avoiding their scrutiny that he tried to lag behind two lieutenants of independent companies who were strolling ahead of him deep in talk. It was impossible, however, not to overtake them in the end, and, as he and his escort drew nearer, scraps of their conversation floated backwards to the Englishman's ears bearing, so he thought, the word Cameron. Instantly he strained his ears to catch more. Perhaps they were discussing Ardroy. As he drew still nearer, he found that he was mistaken, 
but that one officer must be concluding an account of his experiences in a scouting party from which he had recently returned. The same everywhere by Loch Lochy, and there's not a doubt the rebels are much more numerous in that neighborhood than we had any notion of. Camerons and McDonald's, too. Tis thought they even contemplate making a stand in a few days' time. His lordship will be sending out a fresh reconnaissance. Here they passed the speaker, and the rest was lost, but what he had heard did not particularly interest Major Wyndham. Only one Cameron was in his mind at present. And now they were at the shell of the fort, where the remains of the burnt-out buildings within the enceinte hardly looked as if they could afford any accommodation at all. I suppose, said Keith carelessly to his guide, that the rebel prisoners, if you have any, are confined here. Yes, but you must not think, sir, explained the ever-correct aide-de-camp, that Lord Loudon has any wish to put your case on a level with theirs. We are indeed short of tents, and you will not, I believe, find the room assigned to you in the fort any less comfortable. Keith thanked him for the assurance, but he was not really listening. You and Cameron was somewhere in this half-ruined enclosure. His new quarters turned out to be bare, but not more so, certainly, than the tent. In the night, tossing on the camp bed, he made up his mind that if it proved impossible to obtain access to Ardroy in person, he would at least contrive to get a letter smuggled into him somehow. Surely he could find a venal sentry or jailer. He wondered what his own custodian was like, for on arrival, being much absorbed in his own thoughts, he had only received an impression of someone stout and middle-aged. Morning and breakfast revealed him. A sergeant, who might have been a well-to-do sufferer from gout, so painfully did he hobble in with a meal. Talkative upon encouragement, and apologetic for his bodily shortcomings, he explained that his lameness was due to a wound in the foot, received when Fort Augustus was besieged by the Highlanders, he being a sergeant of Giza's regiment, three companies of which then held it. When they surrendered and marched out, he was left behind. And though I looked to have my throat cut, sir, by the wild MacDonalds and what not, I was very well treated, and my wound cared for. Is this what you wish for breakfast, sir? I'm not in a position to exercise much choice, said Keith. You know that Lord Loudon has put me under arrest. The stout sergeant seemed shocked at this blunt reference to an unfortunate fact. If I may presume on your being English, sir, same as I am myself. You may, replied Keith. I would say, sir, that it don't seem right that a Scotsman should be able. But there he stopped, aware, no doubt, that he was about to make a remark even blunter. Keith could not help smiling. I think, my friend, that we had better not pursue that subject. May I ask whether it is by a delicate attention of the authorities that you have been detailed to wait upon me? No, sir. I only come to the fort yesterday, the corporal that was here before, having gone off duty sick, and me not being capable of much at present with this foot. I was told off in his place. Are the ordinary prisoners, the rebels, I mean, in your charge? Yes, sir, so I find, though there's only a few, picked up in the last week. Them's in the rooms below, the dungeons, as we call them. All but a young man, as has been kept by himself at the top of this very building. He's been ill, I understand. Small doubt who that was. You have seen this young man already, I suppose, Sergeant, asked Keith, making no attempt to begin his breakfast. 
How did he seem? I'm interested in him. Oh, indeed, sir. Well, he looks in but a poor way, and seems very melancholy-like. You do not know, you have not heard, anything particular about his previous treatment, asked Keith, his heart suddenly beating hard. You have not heard, for instance, that that forcible measures have been used to wring certain information out of him. Lord, no, sir. Have they so? Yes, tis true he looks as though something of the sort might have happened to him, but I put it down to his having been ill with his wound. Keith had turned away his face. Do you mean, he said after a moment, that he is actually in this very corner of the fort? Yes, sir, up atop of you, as it were. Tis the least damaged portion, and even at that there's some holes in it. You know them Highlanders use near twenty barrels of powder, a blowing of this place up. Have you all you want, sir? By the way, said Keith, as his attendant was hobbling out, do not tell the young man, Mr. Cameron of Ardroy, that I was asking about him. No, sir, I won't mention of it. Mr. Cameron, is that his name now? Why, t'was a Dr. Cameron dressed my foot. A very kind gentleman he was, too. Keith's breakfast was totally cold before he began it, and when the sergeant appeared again, he opened his campaign at once. His guardian proved much less obdurate than he had feared. Obdurate, indeed, he was not. It was quite natural caution on his own behalf, which withheld him from acceding sooner to Major Wyndham's request to be taken up to see the rebel prisoner, up atop of him. It was fortunate for Keith's case that Sergeant Mullins was unaware of the close connection between that prisoner and the English major's arrest. He believed the latter to be suffering merely for hot words to General Lord Loudon, cause unknown. The fact of Keith's being a fellow countryman went for something, as did also the remembrance of the Highlander's good treatment of himself. Finally, he yielded, on condition that he chose his own time for letting the sequestered officer out of his room, and that Major Wyndham gave him his word of honour not to take any steps to help the rebel to escape. Keith promised without difficulty that he would not even speak of such a thing. It was the past, and not the future, which was more likely to engage his tongue. So, about six o'clock in the evening, he followed his limping guide up the stair and found himself standing, with real dread in his heart, outside a door which the sergeant unlocked, saying to an unseen occupant, "'I brought someone to see you, Mr. Cameron.' The room was light and airy, rather too airy, for one wall had in it a good-sized breach, across which a piece of canvas had been stretched in an attempt to keep out rain and wind. Facing the door was a semicircular embrasure, pierced with three narrow windows, and having a stone seat running round it. And on the floor of this embrasure, on some sort of a pallet, with his back propped against the seat, his legs stretched out in front of him, and his eyes fixed on the slit of window opposite him, though from his position on the floor he could not have seen anything but a strip of sky. Ewan Cameron was sitting motionless. He did not turn his head or even move his eyes when the door opened and closed again, and Keith stood equally motionless, staring at a haggard and unshaven profile which he found difficulty in recognizing. At last he took a few steps forward, Ewan turned his head indifferently, and then was as suddenly frozen as one who looks on Medusa. There was a long, shivering pause. 
Why are you here? Judas. Half prepared though he was, Keith felt slashed across the face. He caught his breath. If I were that, I should not be here, he answered unsteadily. I've come. I came directly I had news of you, to explain, to put right if I could. But the words died on his lips. It seemed a mockery to talk of putting anything right now. To explain, repeated Ewan, with an indescribable intonation. And to explain why you told your confederate, Major Guthrie, everything you knew about me. To explain why you came back that night and fooled me. Why you urged him to tear from me what I knew, having first made sure that I knew it. It needs no explanation. You wanted to pay off old scores. Edinburgh, Loch Oik's side. Be content, you have done it. You have more than done it. Ardroy, no, no, as God's my witness, struck in Keith desperately. I had no such thought. But he was not heeded, for Ewan tore on hoarsely. Since you desired so greatly to be even with me for a moment of triumph, could you not have let me be shot and watched it? Or was that not sufficient for you, because I did not know that you were there? Oh, if God would but give me back that moment against the shielding wall, and allow it to finish as it was meant to. Then I should not be today what you have made me, a worse traitor than you are yourself. After that, there was silence. What use in talking of his good faith and his charitable intentions when they had resulted in this? For it was true then, Ardroy had given the information. Indeed, the fact was written on his haunted face, but, at last, Keith said, in a scarcely audible voice, and with his eyes on the floor, What did they do to you? There was no answer, and looking up, he saw that the wounded man's outburst had exhausted him. Breathing fast, he had put his head back against the edge of the seat behind him, and his eyes were half shut. His appearance was so ghastly that Keith went forward and seized a bowl of water from the floor beside him. But a shaking hand came up to keep him off, and he hesitated. "'What? Are you trying to act that night over again?' asked Ewan bitterly. And Keith stood there helpless, his fingers tightening on the bowl. Was this anguished hostility utterly to defeat him? The Highlander looked as if he had not slept for nights and nights. His eyes, naturally rather deep-set, were fearfully sunk and glittered with a feverish brilliance. All his courtesy, all his self-command, his usual rather gentle address, every quality which Keith had observed and carelessly admired in him, seemed obliterated by the event which had brought him almost to breaking point. "'Will you not go?' he gasped out, clenching his hands. "'Will you not go, now that you are satisfied?' Keith put down the bowl. The action seemed symbolic. "'Ardroy!' If you would only listen for a moment, he pleaded. Indeed, it is not as you think. I never betrayed you. I would as soon betray my own brother. There has been a horrible... Oh, why must I undo this, too, after all the rest? Broke at Ewan violently. You cannot make a fool of me again, Major Wyndham. Have a little pity at the last and leave me. No, for your own sake you must hear me, urged Keith. It is Major Guthrie who is responsible. But, Ewan Cameron, with a face like stone save that no stone image ever had eyes like that, 
had put his hands over his ears. It was hopeless then. Baffled, Keefe slowly turned and went to the door. He had wrecked his own career to no purpose. But it was not of that catastrophe which he thought, as, having rapped to be let out, he stood there with bent head. He was not even conscious of resentment at the more than taunts which had been flung at him, for it was he who had brought the man who uttered them to this pass. He knocked again, louder, but the sergeant must have gone away, possibly to keep watch below. It came to Keith dimly, like a shape seen through fog, that Ardroy and he had once before been locked in together. Then he was aware that the half-prostrate man on the floor had moved a little, that he was leaning on his left hand, and that those glittering blue eyes were on him again. "'Cannot you get out?' There was impatience in the icy voice. "'No, for I also am locked in,' answered Keith very low. "'You, the informer.' Keith swallowed hard. "'I am a prisoner, like you.' But the words would hardly come. "'Why?' "'For neglect of duty,' replied Keith warily. "'For turning back while carrying a dispatch.' "'So you cannot even serve your own side faithfully,' observed Ewan with contempt. Keith turned a little whiter and gripped the handle of the locked door. For an instant the flame of his hot temper flickered, only to subside among the ashes. "'No,' he answered after a moment. "'No, so it seems. I have disgraced myself, as well as ruining you. The jailer must have gone away, I am afraid.' and I cannot relieve you of my presence until he returns. It is of no moment, replied Ewan coldly, and he shifted himself a trifle so as to look at his visitor no longer, and propped his head on his clenched fist. The plaid in which he was partly wrapped had slipped from his shoulders when he put his hands up to his ears, and there was now nothing to hide his torn and dirty shirt, which, after all, was only of a piece with the general neglect of his person. The only evidence of care or cleanliness was the fresh bandage round his sword arm. So that has been recently dressed, thought Keith, and he can use it. That must be the plaid which I spread over him in the sheiling. He was a very different man then. He was surprised, after another appreciable silence, to find himself being addressed again, though not looked at. Why did you turn back? What is the use of telling you? You will not believe me. Indeed, I wonder whether you believe me when I say that I am under arrest. That might be a lie also. He had at least succeeded in gaining Ardroy's attention, for the latter dropped his arm and once again looked across the room at him. I should like to know why you turned back, he repeated, without comment on the reply which he had drawn forth. Yes, that at all events he should hear. Keith left the door, where there was no sound of Sergeant Mullins' approach. How oh, cannot you guess? I came because of you. Because, a dozen miles beyond here, on my way back to Inverness, I learned both of the abominable way in which you had been treated in Guthrie's camp, and of the manner in which that scoundrel had twisted my words and my actions in order to misrepresent me to you. It was the night before last. It was late, but I resaddled and came back at once neglecting my duty, 
Lord Loudon said. I rode back in the greatest haste to see you. I was in such apprehension about you. When I got here, I heard that you... Ewan drew his breath sharply, and the sentence was not finished. I insisted on seeing Lord Loudon at once, and when I was told that you had... had made disclosures of your own free will, I demanded to see you. I said that I would never believe that unless you told me so yourself. And then there was a scene of some violence, and I had to give up my sword and my dispatch. And I suppose that in a few days my commission will go the same road. Should I have acted so, so madly against my own interests if I had been what you think me? <laughs> but I'm forgetting. You will say that this is false also, though every officer in Fort Augustus should tell you that it is true. Ewan had put his head down on his updrawn right knee. A shaft of sunlight, striking through one of the narrow windows, fell across its auburn disorder. And, looking with something more painful than pity at the utter desolation of his aspect, Keith thought that life could scarcely hold anything more terrible for a gallant man than to feel himself at once a traitor and betrayed. But betrayed he had not been, if only he could be brought to see that. And perhaps Ewan was being brought to it, for from his huddled figure there came a long sigh, and, after another silence, words which sounded as though they were wrung from his very heart. I wish to God that I could trust you again. End of section 19